This special edition of the Hay Festival podcast was recorded for the launch of Hay Festival Digital 2020. Gloria Steinem shares her thoughts on life, love and rebellion with the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, Laura Bates. For decades, people around the world have found guidance, humour and unity in Gloria Steinem's gift for creating quotes that offer hope and inspire action. From her early days as a journalist and feminist activist, Steinem's words have helped generations to empower themselves and work together. Welcome to this digital Hay Festival event. I'm Laura Bates, the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, and I'm so thrilled to be joining Gloria Steinem. Gloria truly needs no introduction. A writer, political activist and feminist organiser, she was a founder of New York and Ms. magazines, and is the author of many books, most recently, The Truth Will Set You Free, but first it will piss you off. She has co-produced Emmy award-winning television documentaries on child abuse and violence against women. She co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus, the Women's Media Center, and other vital organizations working for equality, and has received too many prestigious awards to list, including the National Magazine Award, the Society of Writers Award from the United Nations, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama. It's such a huge honor to share this virtual stage with her. I first met Gloria in New York in 2015, and since then have been lucky enough to interview and write about her on more than one occasion. And I've never experienced a reaction quite like the reaction of an audience to Gloria. To read her books is to share a similar sensation, that of being in the company of a wise, warm, frank, and deeply supportive friend. Her work is iconic and inspirational, and her latest book is no different, bursting with her trademark wit, wisdom, and generosity of spirit. Gloria, welcome, and thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you for that very generous introduction. I'm only sorry that we can't be together as we have in the past, uh, but it's, 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 it's wonderful to have a transatlantic <laughs> connection here you know and and, and it's when I'm sitting here not having been out of my front door in about I don't know three months. Absolutely let me start by asking you about your latest book the title is glorious the truth will set you free but first it will piss you off can you start by telling the audience a little bit about that quote? Well the the truth will set you free of course is is a time-honored quote and I first remember it on banners held by young men who were protesting the Vietnam War, uh, by which I think they meant, you know, being set free from the draft and free from violence and so on. So it's, 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 it's always been present uh, in my life in one form or another. But the first it will piss you off, I think, is very important recognition of the fact that what we see as injustice that makes us angry first uh, is both uh, freeing and angering at the same time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And thinking about first experiences, I suppose, of of recognizing that anger, um, I know that your previous book, On the Road, was more overtly autobiographical, but in some ways this book feels very personal. And you write that movements don't only create change in the outside world, they transform people in them. 
Could you perhaps describe for us that first moment when you were sent to report on an abortion speak out and tell us about how the feminist movement has transformed your life since then? Mm. Yes, I, I had, this was uh, quite a while ago and we were just starting New York Magazine. Uh, so because I was one of the group of journalists who started, I had given myself a column. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so to, to um, uh, fill that column, I was going to cover uh, a hearing held by uh, an early feminist group here in New York City. Uh, because there had been a hearing in our own state legislature here in New York about uh, some somewhat reforming the laws against abortion. And 14 men and one nun had been invited to testify. So this <laughs> wonderful group of, of young women said, wait a minute, let's hear from women who have actually had this experience. And in a church basement downtown, they... Um, invited people just to women to tell what had happened to them in seeking uh, a then illegal abortion. And I was there as, as a uh, journalist, uh, which is significant because I did not yet have the courage to tell the story of my own abortion. Mm -hmm. I was, I was still feeling that I was supposed to be a journalist and, uh, you know, not insert my own experience, but it was the first time that I had ever heard women standing up in public t telling the truth about something that was illegal, only happened to women. Uh, and I suddenly, it, that was a great moment of revelation because I realized if this was an experience that one in three at that point, American women had needed an abortion at some time in their lives, why was it illegal? Why was it dangerous? Why was it, uh, you know, hugely expensive and secret and, uh, you know, and, and dangerous because because it was illegal, and and that that was a very big beginning of questioning, you know, that this is not right. It doesn't make sense. Why is it not the beginning of democracy that we each have control over our own physical selves? Mm -hmm. Does it sometimes feel like not very much has changed? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, I think a lot, a lot has changed. But I agree with you that this is the subject of backlash because it is the reason why women are subordinated in the first place, which is to control reproduction. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the kind of meaning of patriarchy, if we think about it, is father right and and the ability to of men to decide when and whether and to lay claim to uh, offspring so you know this really is the most fundamental basic question uh, we happen to have the one thing that men don't have which is wombs and so controlling our wombs is the most basic is the beginning of most hierarchies uh, and therefore it is the source of most resistance. For instance, now is you perhaps you see in the press in various states in my country, uh, conservative uh, right-wing legislatures are trying to curtail or restrict abortion or restrict clinics where mm -hmm. abortion is, is, is given safely. 
and the question of in this pandemic whether that is a uh, necessary medical procedure, which of course it is, it has also had to be fought for. So because it is so basic, it continues to be a source of contention. Absolutely. And of course, it's it's not alone in, in being one of the many uh, gendered fault lines exposed by the pandemic, of course, with domestic violence soaring and, and other areas in which we're seeing women particularly impacted, for example, by increased domestic duties, by increased likelihood of discrimination in terms of um, losing their jobs. Um, is there a possibility of an opportunity afterwards to, to recognize mm. these issues? Well, I, I, I do think that this global tragedy has forced us to do two things. One, to realize that we are all connected. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the virus does not recognize, <coughs> excuse me, that, that we are, you know, it doesn't have an idea of gender, race, class, whatever, <clears throat> and neither should we. Uh, and also it reveals the fault lines. For instance, in my country, it has dramatized the ridiculous fact that we are the only advanced democracy without a system of uh, a national system of health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I hope uh, and I think I feel <laughs> that we are recognizing our connectedness and seeing injustices that are dramatized by this emergency. Uh, and I hope and believe that our consciousness and our actions will be different in the future. Absolutely. And certainly here as well, I think just in the last few days, um, there's been a a great petition for an investigation into the much higher death rate amongst black, Asian and minority ethnic people, which obviously Mm -hmm. is another example of a a huge inequality being highlighted by the unequal impact of the virus. Mm. And here, I don't don't know what's happening there, but here, once again, the statistics are being taken, which is a good thing, of course, by race and ethnicity and poverty and so on. But the gender aspect of that is, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I have a couple of friends who are looking for that, for Mm -hmm. uh, black women in particular in in my country. And we haven't been able to find it, even though that we know that women in general are more endangered because of lower income, taking care of children, you know, a whole series of uh, service jobs, a whole series of, of reasons. And we know the racial statistics. Mm-hmm. We still haven't broken them out uh, by gender as well. Right. I think here as well, we're seeing a complex picture. We're seeing men disproportionately likely, I think, to be affected by the virus itself, um, and women disproportionately likely to be affected by spikes in issues around domestic violence and street harassment. So hopefully these no, are well, things that's that will interesting. be studied. Is, is, that, is that clearly the case? Because I saw here a statistic saying that men were more uh, uh, likely to get the virus, and then it disappeared and it seemed not to be true anymore. As far as I know, the statistics here seem to strongly suggest that men are, are more likely to uh, to die, certainly, as a result of the virus. Um, but mm. we're also seeing... Do we, do, do we know why? I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Um, but certainly we're <clears throat> seeing 
spikes in other ways in which uh, women are experiencing uh, pregnancy discrimination. There's a lot of stories coming out of pregnant women being forced into unsafe working conditions, uh, not being given job security. So I think it's still a very complicated picture. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, I was really powerfully struck um, by the parts of your book about uh, women and self-esteem, which made me think about the political nature of self-belief and self-care. Um, in the book you write, uh, I love this, the golden rule was written by a smart guy for guys, but women need to reverse it, treat ourselves as well as we treat others. Because I know there will be women listening to this who have been made by society to feel that self-care practices are selfish or non-essential. Can you say a little bit about how women's self-esteem is linked to activism and to political change? Mm. We so much are still... I mean, much has changed, but we are still in the paradigm of caregivers, of uh, being responsible for others, uh, and hence the idea of reversing the golden rule as being quite revolutionary. Um, but it's it's crucial, you know, because if if we're if we're trying to democratize and do away with hierarchy why why are we <laughs> perpetuating it in ourselves sometimes i think the best way for or a way anyway for women to get out of it especially if they have daughters is to to realize that the daughters are learning from them and imitating them you know so so i i see women saying okay i realize that if i look in the mirror and criticize my body my daughter is watching me, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Yes. You know, I think it's an intimate way of learning. Yes, and, and of course plays into the fact that we're more likely to be prepared to, to do things for other people than for ourselves. Yes, no, it's, it's um, you know, I, 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 I do think it's uh, the, the reversal of the golden rule is <laughs> a good thing. And and some so it's, it's not it's not difficult somehow you know if we if we just take the process we are going through and and change the gender of it we can see what's wrong with it. Yes, yes, a very simple way to approach it. Um, the the book makes very powerful arguments, in fact, for uh, recalibrating family life and responsibilities, and in particular for reinvisiging our definitions of family and of motherhood. Um, you talk in the book about the benefits for men of experiencing what has long been seen as women's work and about the idea of mothering as a verb rather than as a noun. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Yes, I think, I think uh, we're all men and women. Are, each of us is uniquely human and striving to be a full human being. Women often realize uh, our full humanity by being active outside the house, and men often realize it by being active inside the house. The, the qualities that are called feminine are just the qualities necessary to raise children. Empathy, patience, attention to detail, you know, all of those qualities. Uh, and for, for men to develop them in themselves, which is part of the full circle of humanity, which of course they have absolutely, just as women do, uh, is, is, is greatly enhanced by um, when they're growing up, 
being raised to raise children, being raised to look after themselves, feed themselves, pay attention to detail, I don't know, you know, whatever it is. Uh, so, so that men get to be whole people too. Mm-hmm. And it actually lengthens their lives <laughs> because the, the masculine role, the idea of being in control and so on, is part of what uh, shortens men's lives. So the more we can raise our sons like our daughters and our daughters like our sons, uh, the, the, the more whole people they will be able to be. And speaking about that, that privilege of becoming a whole person, you talk about women living out the unlived lives of their mothers. Can you tell us a little bit about that from your, from your own personal perspective? It, it, I must say it took me a, an alarmingly long time to realize that that's what I was doing because my mother um, was not well and had a difficult life and I was kind of loving her and looking after her but striving not to be like my mother, you know, I, which probably, or not to live her life, which is maybe not uncommon. And also I hadn't known her when she... In fact, I was a teenager, I think, before I even realized that she had ever been a journalist and and been a writer and led an independent life. <clears throat> so, it 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 took me a while to realize who she could have been. Uh, and you know, that's could have been is a terribly sad phrase, isn't it? I mean, yeah. might have been, could have been. Uh, and I, I did begin to realize that I was um, living out her unlived life, which, of course, one can't do. I mean, each person has to live out our own lives. But I suspect that there may be quite a few people who are living out the unlived lives of parents. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that intergenerational awareness and that that handing down of a struggle is, is reflected within the wider feminist movement as well. And one of the things that comes across most joyfully in your work, I think, is the strength of intergenerational feminism. Um, in this book, you, you write about working with young women in the movement. Uh, and you say, because I am older and remember when things were worse, I bring them the gift of hope and optimism because they see how unjust things still are and have a stake in the future, they bring me the gift of anger and impatience. I can't think of a better combination. Um, Feminism, I think, is a movement often portrayed from the outside as deeply fractured, often along generational lines. Can you tell us a bit about your experiences of organizing and working with feminists across divides? You know, I, I, I'm not trying to overgeneralize my experience. Some of it comes from being as old as I am because because I was a 50s person, not even a 60s person, you know. So there's there's almost no one, there's maybe one or two people of my age who, you know, became part of the movement. Or So uh, from the beginning, I've, I've always... Uh, been working with and organizing with women who were at least a decade younger and more like two decades and now it's you know four or five decades but I, I, I do think that um, just as a general principle as I was trying to say there in, in that quote that it is very helpful 
to us to organize across generations. And segregating by age is as ridiculous as and destructive as segregating by race or class or gender or anything else. Because we, you know, we we learn from each other. Uh, we need each other. Uh, it's. Um, I I regret that my culture, at least, maybe yours too, is in this place where they think it's okay to have senior communities. Mm. Uh, and you know, which cuts off older people from from younger ones, and to the detriment of both. So I, you know, I hope we get out of that. Absolutely. Um, and on that point specifically of, of working with other women, um, a question that's come in from from one of our audience members. Um, she, she asks what advice you have, she says, for feminists when dealing with non-feminist women who are in all areas of life. She says, I found that many non-feminist <coughs> women are part of the problem uh, in the continuation of sexism in our still very patriarchal Welsh society. Mm. They don't support women who are trying to challenge institutional and structural sexism. Well, here's, uh, yes, I mean, there, this is what she says is absolutely true. But what it's important to remember is that though though women may be a problem for other women, they don't have the power to be the big problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, women may be adversaries, but we don't have the power to be our worst adversaries. <laughs> uh, for, for instance, there's now a, uh, a kind of a very, uh, not very good series here uh, called Mrs. America. And it, it, it gives you the impression that a woman named Phyllis Schlafly, who was a very uh, religious and right-wing woman, uh, opposed the Equal Rights Amendment, it gives you the impression that she was the reason that was defeated. Mm -hmm. In actuality, I don't believe she changed one vote. Nobody could ever discover that she changed even one vote. The insurance industry here opposed the Equal Rights Amendment because if they stopped sex segregating their actuarial tables, it would cost them millions upon millions of dollars. Wow. She she was just the sort of, uh, I don't know, public, you know, that's brought in at the last minute to mm -hmm. make it seem that women were against the equal, which actually the vast majority of women always supported the equal rights amendment. It, if now 90% of us support it. We still don't have it. But it, it, it was, the, the series makes it seem as if women are our own worst enemies, mm -hmm. which keeps us from recognizing who our worst enemies are. Not that we don't aren't in conflict. Yes, we are in conflict. But by and large, we don't have the power to be our own worst enemies. And and this idea of the kind of token woman is is often used by the media as well in in setting up uh, debates. Is is this something that you've um, experienced? How do you how do you handle that when a, a media sort of debate seeks to sort of create a catfight uh, as a means of undermining feminist arguments? Well, that's the problem with this this ridiculous television show, which I'm sure, I mean, it's not, I'm sure the 
actors in it are fine, you know, but I mean, just the thrust of the story mm-hmm. is, 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 is the problem. So you just have to keep naming it. Yes. You know, and uh, the same is true racially, you know, that people would say, oh, black people can't get along. And so, no, the problem is racism. Hello, excuse me. So you just, uh, you just have to keep your eye on where the power and the problem is. Um, in terms of that idea of, of tackling the real problem, um, you refer very powerfully in the book to the period just before or just after a woman leaving an abusive relationship and, and that we know that is the most dangerous time when she's most likely to be killed. And you use this as an analogy for our present moment in history, um, suggesting that the moment at which we are perhaps about to be free uh, is a moment of great present danger. Um, can Can you talk to us a little bit about this present moment, about what you perceive to be those great dangers mm-hmm. and, and what we need to do to avoid them. Well, it's one of the great lessons of looking at microcosm and understanding its importance in the macrocosm because it's, it's just perfectly statistically clear that a, a, in a domestic violence situation, a woman is most likely to be beaten or killed at the moment of just before, just after she escapes because she is escaping control and control is the point. So looking at that nationally, wherever we are or in whatever our larger group is, is very instructive. Now, speaking from my own country, we are, just about uh, at the point of becoming no longer a majority white country. The the first generation of babies who are majority babies of color has already been born. And that something like 20 or 30%, we don't know exactly, but from public opinion polls, people who really believe that they have a right to a hierarchy they were born into uh, is in fear and backlash. Mm-hmm. That's the part of the country that voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. It was not the majority. He lost the majority. He, uh, he won by a technicality called the Electoral College, I'm sorry to say, mm-hmm. which itself was only the slave-owning states wanted. We have to get rid of it. But, you know, it it, it helps to explain it's both it's both hopeful and fearful at the same time, if that makes sense, because we're at the moment when we are escaping, which is a source of enormous hope. And if we look at the public opinion polls, we feel greatly heartened. Uh, but we have to recognize it's also a time of danger, mm-hmm. and we need to look after each other and understand we can have a backlash like the so-called election of Trump for whom I apologize (laughs) to the rest of the world. Uh, (laughs) um, You know, does that make sense? So, so I I do think that there is an interesting and useful parallel or insight if thinking about a woman escaping or a man, anyone, or a child escaping a, a uh, violent home and a country in the process of moving towards a more real democracy. Mm. 
and and you very um clearly and usefully in in your book um expand on that connection between a, a racist backlash and an anti-feminist one and and you give the example of of abortion as a fundamentally uh, the attempts to control women's bodies as, as being fundamentally used in in racist as well as misogynistic ways particularly um, when it comes to theories um, of white supremacists, for example, um, can you say a little bit about that that connection between mm-hmm. sexism and racism? One of the questions that I've received on on Instagram uh, when I mentioned I was going to be interviewing you was uh, from somebody asking whether you agreed that in order to be feminist, one must also be actively anti-racist. So can mm-hmm. you say a little bit about that? Connection? Yes, uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, just in a very basic sense. If feminism doesn't include all women, it's not feminism. So just fundamentally, you know, it's it's you know, racism is a is anti-feminist, if you see what I mean. But but also, basically, uh, because women are, so to speak, the means of reproduction. In order to maintain racism in the very long run, you have to have a certain amount of influence or control over who has children with whom. Uh, certainly the laws in this country reflect that historically. Uh, I mean, miscegenation was more reliably punished than many other more serious crimes in our legal system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the... Racism reinforces uh, sexism and the need to control women in order to keep races separate or to and to say one race is, should have more children or fewer children and so on. Actually, the same thing is true often for caste, say in India, mm-hmm. or any birth-based hierarchy. Uh, it it redoubles the need for controlling reproduction. Absolutely. Um, so one of my favorite quotes in the book is from Robin Morgan. He says, "Hate generalizes, love specifies." Oh what, yes, I I love that quote. I love that quote. Yes, yes. Uh, what, Robin is such a you know she's she's a, a first rate poet, a philosopher, an activist. She's she's our most all around activist. <laughs> as as um as movements for change and as activists for change what what can we learn from from that idea in terms of our tactics in terms of how we move forward uh well i think to pay attention to the particular mm-hmm. as much as we can uh of course, when we when we create laws, we generalize. But if we don't create them with a knowledge of the particular, then they become oppressive laws. Mm-hmm. So I I hope that we begin uh, with. <laughs> of course, I mean love does uh, individual does individualize us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that we begin there and generalize only to the degree that it's inclusive of the individual. Absolutely. 
you return, Gloria, again and again in your work to the importance of telling our stories. And happily, we are at a moment where women, um, certainly in some countries, are beginning to feel able to share their stories in unprecedented numbers. But we also live in an age where people seem to be less likely than ever to listen, particularly to those whose worldviews don't match their own. We often give women advice on how to make themselves heard. But what would you say to those who find it very difficult at the moment to listen? Well, um, we don't learn while we're talking. Mm -hmm. That's kind of stunning, isn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> if we want to learn something, we have to listen. It's actually selfish. Don't you want to learn? Of course we want to learn. <laughs> so, so you know, to, to, to listen is a, is a profoundly self-improving act. And, and I would also say to, to just think of democracy in a very simple way, which is if we have more power, sometimes we have to, than the people we're with, whoever it is, we have to remember to listen as much as we talk, right? And if we have less, we have to remember to talk as much as we listen, which can be just as difficult mm -hmm. in an office or class or racial situation. You know? So just that kind of simple day-to-day -day democracy of consciousness, you know, of trying to equalize talking and listening is amazing. You know, it's, it's amazing what an impact it has. Yes, and, and how simple. And one of the things that you warn of is the risk of empathy being lost when that face-to-face -face interaction, when that contract of, of speaking and listening um, mm -hmm. is purely digital. Um, we know, of course, that the internet has brought great benefits for feminism, but are there risks as well? Yes, I mean, I, I'm not at all downplaying the importance of the internet because I think it has special importance for women who can communicate in safety at home in a way they might not be able to do otherwise. So it's, you know, it's, and get information, it's crucial. But I asked my friend, neuro friendly neurologist here, a woman who's a great neurologist, and a friend, if, if we could empathize in the same way, that is, produce oxytocin the the uh, hormone that uh, allows us to not just learn but to feel what the other what another person is feeling you know when that is if somebody holds a baby male or female you're flooded with oxytocin or if you see somebody who uh, is having a, an accident you have an impulse to help them even if you don't know them that's oxytocin, without which probably our species could not have survived. So I asked her if we produce oxytocin from looking at the, a page or a screen, and she said, "No, not really. You really, it's really, you know, <laughs> when you're there with with all five senses. I mean, I I don't know that there's been a scientific experiment, but I think it seems pretty clear that you need the impulse of, of, of all five senses pr to produce this very precious hormone that allows us to, to empathize. 
So I, I hope we, do, we remember that and spend as much time with each other as we do online or with books or communicating in another way. Now, that's especially difficult right now. Of course. You know, because of being isolated. So we, we need to be very aware of that. Absolutely. Uh, and, and actually also, particularly right now, uh, it, it's been said by certain experts that there are particular dangers around the, the risks of, of online abuse, of, of child sexual abuse and exploitation online. Um, and um, of course, of young people spending increasing amounts of time on the internet. You write passionately in, in your book about the differences between pornography and erotica. In the UK, we know that 60% of young people have seen online pornography by the age of 14 and a quarter by the age of 12. Can you say a little bit about the, the gendered impact of, of porn in its modern form? Mm. Well, I, it would help if we could at least uh, not consign to pornography all of sexuality. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I think there's a lot of hope in just the words, don't you? I mean, because porne means female slaves, Greek female sexual slaves. Uh, Erotica comes from eros, which means love and has a connotation of consent and mutual pleasure and so on. So if we just made that distinction, right now I fear that people are just giving over all of sexuality to pornography. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm not, obviously most of it on the web is is pornographic, is about the subordination of women, but there must be some erotica there somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, certainly there is in, in, in writing, mm-hmm. especially by women, there's erotica. Um, so if, you know, if we make it sex versus no sex, that, that's, that just will never change. We have to understand that it's uh, not it's in a way it's restoring mutual pleasure not denying it absolutely um throughout the book glory you celebrate rebellion and with your trademark generosity of spirit you encourage readers to seek out other authors and thinkers you have you have come across you have worked with um are there any particular rebels you admire that you would like our audience to go and find out more about Oh, gosh, there's so many. Can I send you a list? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I just need to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, because they're, 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 just, they're just so many. Um, of course. Well, I'll, in, I'll encourage the audience very much to, to read the book and, and to find those quotes and to go and find out more about this, <laughs> okay. the women that you do list in the book. Um, do you but have you any... Know, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one, you know, because I just... Uh, uh, there's a friend who'd written a book um, about the color purple as a, a, a kind of the birth and, and progress of the color purple from book to film to play to, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it made me realize again what a universal uh, author and revolutionary <laughs> uh, Alice Walker is. Because mm-hmm. she is completely, 100%, understandable and in the color purple of course she writes in the in the speech pattern of country people i i i later i met two um 
accidentally different translators of the color purple, one uh, Japanese and one Chinese. And they both told me that each one had used the language of their own country people in order to translate the spirit wow. of the color purple. And that in both cases, it was the first time that a that that language had been used in a uh, work of art. Wow. So if you do one true thing, <laughs> it stays true. Uh, and so I would urge, because Alice does that, I would mm-hmm. suggest that people, you know, go back to her poetry, uh, her essays, you know, um, and and see if they find a friend. Wonderful, thank you. Um, and and one last question from me. Um, I find, and I'm sure that you have found in your many many visits to universities and and to schools, uh, that every time I go to particularly to a school, I think, and meet young women, girls, perhaps teenagers. There's so very often that one girl in a classroom who is trying so hard to stand up for what she believes in, who has perhaps come across feminism, who's dared to use the word and who is finding herself facing a really very fierce backlash. Even now, even in this moment when people are so quick to say that we're living in a post-feminist world or that, you know, suddenly Me Too has made everything completely acceptable. Still, I think there are these girls everywhere who think that they are the only one and who are on the verge of giving up and who feel completely defeated, who are being lambasted by their peers for calling themselves a feminist. They're called feminazis. They're made fun of. They're ridiculed. What would your message be for for that one girl in every classroom? What would you say to her? Gosh, I fear that feminazi is a, a phrase given to the world by the, an awful guy in this culture. So sorry about that. It's fascinating because <laughs> because Hitler was devoutly anti-feminist. I mean, the very first thing he did was to padlock the family planning clinics and declare <laughs> abortion a crime against the state. And so, I mean, he's living proof that uh, hierarchies begin <laughs> with controlling reproduction. It could not be more more ridiculous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I I would say to her, um, first of all, trust your, your that voice inside you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and uh, f- find uh, a listener and a and a friendly voice somewhere. You know, it, it can be it doesn't maybe you're not finding it in your classroom. But maybe there's somebody in your, um, I don't know, in your neighborhood or just somebody you feel uh, drawn to. Uh, and and, and ne- never mind if, if it's, there's, theoretically you're not supposed to be talking to that person, talk to that person. You know, trust, trust, your, trust your own wisdom. Wonderful. 
Gloria, I can't thank you enough. Um, you're not, I know, somebody who easily accepts thanks. When you are asked very regularly about your advice for younger feminists, you unfailingly speak about what you have to learn from them. But as somebody whose activism wouldn't exist without your example, as one of a generation of feminists lifted by your support and inspired by your ideas, and as a woman whose life has been directly improved by your life's work, I want to say thank you for everything. And to everybody well, listening. Well, and I say, and I get to thank you even <laughs> more because you are going to continue this after I have gone on someplace else. And I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for listening to this Hay Festival podcast, which is sponsored by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. For 8,000 more events live from Hay Festivals around the world, please visit the Hay Player on our website.